0: The Radio Misfits Podcast Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Planted with Sarah Pion podcast. I am Sarah Pion, your host, and today I have the pleasure of having double Emmy Award winning actor, narrator, and all around politically engaged wonderful human being, Peter Coyote, on the podcast. Peter, welcome and thank you for joining me today.
0: Thanks for asking me, Sarah.
1: Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you, we're going to start out with the question that I ask all my guests. Can you tell me about your first cannabis experience?
0: Sure. Uh, I was 16 years old and um, I'd driven across country with a friend to go see the Beats in San Francisco. I'd been reading about them, been reading about, you know, Buddhism and reading about these grownups who were kind of seeing the world the way I did. And when I was coming back, my family had a friend who was living in Mexico, the first kind of openly gay man I'd ever met, a brilliant guy named David Campbell, who was teaching Chekhov acting exercises to the Indians for Beos Artes, which was the big museum in Mexico City. So we went down and we were hanging out and we were trooping through Mexico and drinking and carousing. And he... I think after a while, he got a little tired of two teenagers. He was an old hipster who had passed himself off as black to work as a bellhop at the hotel, Teresa in Harlem. And his roommate was Billy holiday. Oh, this guy had kept really good company. So he started explaining to us about marijuana and how it wasn't addictive and how I would had two friends die in a car crash, drinking, coming back from a bar. My parents were both, not alcoholics but close and i was not a big fan so we we went out drove out into the country got to this little ramshackle place with kerosene railroad lanterns hanging there and this little campesino comes out and we buy eight kilos of weed in a bushel basket (laughs) that's awesome it cost sixty dollars because i didn't know when i was going to be back and i thought if this was going to be so good well, we should. I should have enough. So as we're going back, he's rolling joints and giving them to me, and nothing's happening. I'm just driving my little old Volvo, and we're running through the desert. And all of a sudden, I scream, and there's some kind of huge animal in the road. And I jerk the car, and we go bouncing through the mesquite bushes <laughs> and crashing through stuff. There was no animal. There was nothing. And when the car stopped, I realized there was totally... Hi. Totally (laughs) gone. So we spent the next three weeks totally gone. And then we checked into a hotel and we stuffed towels under the door and we began stripping these kilos and wrapping them in newspaper and bundling them up and wrapping them in saran wrap and if anybody had been looking they would have seen the 10,000 narcotized flies on the screen who were paralyzed and they'd know what was going on anyway i shoved them under the back seat of my car drove to the border and went directly to jail oh, you uh you did
1: it with a bang
0: yeah yeah i like i like to do things in a big way and as my father often said to me son life is hard for the stupid <laughs>
1: <laughs> what about for the curious <laughs> what about the, the curious life for the curious <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: if you're curious and smart you'll you'll get away anyway right. i uh i don't know if you know it but i'm a zen buddhist priest and i'm a transmitted teacher which means i've been freed by my teacher to ordain my own priests and stuff like that and so around when i got serious about zen practice I stopped using drugs. I was a heroin addict for 10 years. And um, I just, I had to change my life. And I started meditating Mm -hmm. and went into therapy to get rid of some junkyard dogs in my psyche. And so I've got nothing against marijuana at all. I am curious about why everybody wants to be stoned. As I look at all these businesses and all this stuff that's going on, Something's telling me that America's not a very happy place. That people don't exactly like their lives as they are. And so I just see that as a priest and as someone kind of without judgment, mm-hmm. but I can't say I'm actually a part of the big marijuana revolution in the in the 60s I had all these friends who were really big dealers. I mean burying semi trucks underground, wow. putting grow lights in them. Uh, hanging them in trees and getting $5,000 a pound. And now what I predicted would happen, happened. Big companies have come in and they've used the law, health and safety uh, programs to wipe out all the small growers who had been, you know, paying their mortgages and making a little spending money. And then started realizing that instead of 10 plants, they could grow a hundred plants or a thousand plants. And so just like unregulated capitalism, the whole thing sort of metastasized into something that it wasn't in the 60s when I was there.
1: Yeah, yeah, it has changed a lot. And I think just a couple of weeks ago, I was up in Humboldt visiting some farmers and hearing about people losing their farms, deciding not to grow after decades or even generations of growing. And also the tragedy is that people who have lost their livelihood because of how it's turned into an industry and become very unfriendly for small artisan farmers. There've actually been a lot of suicides up there. It's been murders. I
0: remember the first murder in Humboldt. My daughter lived up there. My daughter's mother was a grower. A lot of my friends up there were growers Mm -hmm. and I watched the community change from a community to a collection of outlaws with lots of secrets lots of, you know, keeping privacy and stuff. And then there were the Hells Angels and then there were the Mexican mafias moving in. And it was not the kind of uh, what you might call the digger free economy at all.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I totally see that. It's, it's a different thing. When I, I came into this about, oh, well, it was a little over a decade. I was 37 when I had stage three colon cancer and that's when I got my card and used it therapeutically to help get me mm-hmm. eating again and with nausea and when I decided to work in the area it was back when we were still medical so we were we were seeing a lot of really ill people we were still seeing a lot of small producers and people that were creating like very very thoughtfully cultivating flowers and creating edibles that were able to help people yeah and, I remember that yeah I, I that. and now it's I mean I think Well, it's
0: like anything else, you know, like opioids are a medicine. Yeah. But if you're not careful, there's a show I've just been watching on TV called Dope Sick. Oh, yeah. Which is about the the Sackler family. It's brilliant. Michael Keaton plays a country doctor who gets really helpful guy who gets hooked on opioids. So it's like anything else. You know, if you don't everything. The reason I became a Buddhist priest is because everything boils down to people. There's no plan, there's no great system, there's no political device that's going to ever impose its will on an unruly intention. If you haven't moderated your own impulses and greed and your anger and your delusions, there's nothing that human beings can't mess up. So (laughs) Buddhism looks slow because it's one person at a time, but You know, 50 years ago when I started, there were a couple of Buddhists around Northern California. Now there are millions all over the country. And um, that to me is the place that we need to be looking because there's nothing wrong with being high. I mean, same with psychedelics. Psychedelics are great, but it's like flying to the Grand Canyon in a helicopter. You get there and it's awesome. The vistas are fantastic. It shakes you up, it changes your perspective, but you flew in a helicopter. You can't get your way back without a helicopter. If you had gotten there by meditating and walking, you would have left yourself breadcrumbs and you could get back there anytime you needed it. So it's the same for weed. Mm -hmm. If you can't get yourself back to a place where your senses are wide open, where you're relaxed, where you're able to enjoy yourself without it, you're always got to carry your crutch around.
1: So that's the only
0: negative I see.
1: I I completely agree. Uh, Several years ago, I had somebody come in with a syringe of concentrate. He put it on the counter and he looked at me and he said, I've been using this to get myself off of hard drugs and now I'm not getting high anymore. And he just stared at me very hard. And I looked at him and I said, well, I can't help you with that. It sounds like there's a hole that you're trying to fill that a substance is not going to do for you. And he was, yeah. he was a little frustrated with me. But that is the truth. I mean, that's these are the conversations I love to have, Peter, because we have one side that is, you know, full of stigma. It's like, oh, it's all bad. And then we have people in my industry and movement that say, oh, it's all good. Like when people will introduce me yeah. and say Sarah cured her cancer with cannabis, I say, no, I used it. You know, for symptom management. Yes. And we need to have this conversation about the gray areas and the spectrum and people's relationships with themselves and substances. It's a really important conversation to have. And and going back to what you were talking about psychedelics, when we're looking at, you know, the decriminalization of psychedelic use um, and possibly going into a legal market, I, I don't know about you, but I have pause around that just because I've, it's, It's a very powerful thing. And I think that when people think that something's legal, they don't really look at the repercussions of what they're using or have consideration for dosage and set and setting and what they're using it for and where they're at at that moment in time. What what are your thoughts around that?
0: Well, I'll tell you a story. I had one of my best friends, one of the early founding diggers was a guy named Brooks Butcher. Handsome, charismatic, just on top of his game. A great kind of uh, uh uh innovative uh life actor mm-hmm. and he took acid one night and it was a bad trip and he clawed his eyes out he oh. pulled his eyes out and he drowned trying to escape from the mental asylum he climbed the fence and he fell into a lake and he drowned and this was my beef timothy leary asked me to go on tour with him as a speaker mm-hmm. and i wouldn't do it because well, first of all, I didn't trust him. But second of all, you don't take something as powerful as the human mind or something that unleashes the human mind that temporarily disengages the ego Mm -hmm. and just spread it to millions of people. It's like giving them all guns. You're going to have 15% of the people that are sociopathic or crazy You wouldn't leave your baby in a room with broken glass and open electric wires and rat poison and razor blades around. And yet, guns are just that easy to get, Mm -hmm. and drugs are just that easy to get. And we wonder why things go screwy. Yeah. So, to me, once again, it boils down to human, all of nature is half negative and half positive literally on an atomic level mm-hmm. and so is human nature human nature is half negative and half positive positive. and if you don't know about the human the negative side if you just think you're a good person if you just think you're the good guys you're never looking at the dark side you're never okay. monitoring it because you've already made a decision i'm the good guy so you wind up bombing a hotel in baghdad in the middle of the night with men women and children sleeping in it Because you don't like the country's leader right right so suppose the mexicans had come in and said you know something joey gaddy mafia kingpin in brooklyn is a threat to mexico and they bombed brooklyn it's exactly the same so what buddhism does is it opens up the full spectrum and your job is to monitor what comes up we meditate we get intimate with our minds And we watch and we see the dark and we learn not to run away from it. We see the good, we learn not to run toward it. And we realize that we can contain it. But if you don't practice containing uncomfortable impulses and uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, you're victimized by it because you're a good guy. And so something's out of your mouth or you've given someone the finger or you've pulled a trigger before you even know it. Right. So my attitude is, you know yeah drugs psychedelics whatever but who's taking it
1: yeah that's that's who's real taking it
0: and we we license people to drive a car why shouldn't we license people well we do we license therapists to dispense psychedelics and when people do it in a in a kind of um a safe way and a safe space i think a lot of great things can happen but you know to drop acid and go to the mall—that's mm. not really thinking ahead and not really preparing yourself for what can go wrong on any city street today. So I'm—I I'm, sound much more conservative, but I'm high most of the time on the natch, and I can. And when I'm not, I can get myself back there, and so um, I don't need to take drugs really.
1: Yeah, uh,
0: you know, maybe some people do, I don't care, but they need to know that they're they're putting a band-aid over a wound that they haven't healed.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think that if that's it's it's one thing to be using it for something like pain management and and the wonderful thing is is that there are actually a lot of non-euphoric emergent cannabinoids that people are able to use to help create homeostasis without having euphoria that might be distracting or it's it's helping you run from whatever it is that you need to deal with because i think let me sorry no no what were you gonna say so i was
0: gonna say you know enlightenment is not a fence that you climb over Mm -hmm. and suddenly you're in a permanent bliss state in some buddhist disneyland right Enlightenment is like a a breakthrough where you kind of step outside your personality for a while into the big mind of the universe and you get a glimpse, but you have to come back to your everyday life. And so people who are always trying to maintain a certain state of mind, that's an act of greediness. That's like saying, oh, I want the weather to always be the same. So unless you've been, unless you've trained yourself to put up with discomforts, to resist scratching an itch as soon as it comes, to look at a pain before you do something about it. You're vulnerable. You're just like leaves being blown in the wind. So what Buddha really wanted was to teach people how to live a noble, dignified life and be able to be helpful to others. And he did that by teaching you how to contain the afflictions of the world, which are universal. We're all living in a peppered wind. But if we try to run away from it, if we try to hide from it, we're usually winding up in a bar in the wrong bed, shopping, gambling, doing something like that. So we're not accepting the parts of life that we don't particularly like, that come along with the parts that we do like, because the universe is half positive and half negative.
1: Yeah. And then that running, we end up with even more emptiness. Emptiness
0: and, you know, illicit love affairs that ruin families and compulsive shopping and seeking for power and seeking for dominance and seeking all of this stuff because, you know, you feel like this tiny little mosquito in the vastness of the universe because you don't realize that you are the universe. That you've never lived separate from sunlight, from water, from microbes in the soil, from oxygen, from the people growing your food, shipping your food, cooking your food, sewing your clothes. So yes, of course, we have an individuated existence, this sack of skin, Mm -hmm. but we're also like ticks on the body of a dog. We're all connected to all of it. And if you only see the one side, if you only see the sack of skin as a separate entity, you know, the universe is terrifying. You think it's all out there. Yeah. it's not
1: well. It, when I've when I've done some reading, I've oh, I've always been attracted to Buddhism. I'm I'm not a practicing Buddhist myself, but I've I've done a lot of reading. And one of the things that I found was really helpful was making friends with your feeling or with your with your fears, like actually looking at them and approaching them, and not and and kind of a friendly inquiry around it instead of constantly running from it and making it bigger yeah, than it that's is. Very
0: good. So the way to do that, really, Mm -hmm. is to meditate. And the reason why is because when you sit still, whether you sit in the chair or whether you sit cross-legged, and you have a wrecked posture and you just pay attention to your breathing, you're sequestering a certain amount of your awareness so that your mind can't run away and take you off into fantasy. Mm -hmm. And so from that safe place, you can just look. And you can just be comfortable. And the more you do it, the more you learn to trust that posture—that nothing's going to blow you off your game. You can see and accept anything that comes up. And the more you do it, it's like expanding your inner field, or like taking the top off a pressure cooker. You know, once the top is off, the steam is no problem. The pressure's no problem once you begin to expand and get a sense of the world outside your personality, that little self that you call me, um, which is just the tiniest little part of the world, it only has three things it can do. It can like, it can dislike, or it can be neutral. And just think of that next to the world's vastness. Think of all the explorations and stuff. So when you meditate, basically it allows you to kind of turn your personality into a colander. It kind of gets pierced and the universe leaks in and we or we drop below it at occasional times and we get an expanded sense of all the umbilical cords that come from our body into the sun, into water, into oxygen. And you, I did a funeral on uh, the 24th and a lovely woman who was the mother of my next door neighbor, And I'm talking to this blue collar crowd and I'm saying, you know, we have this idea that I'm over here and you're over there. But if I ask you to find that thing, you call a self, it doesn't have a color. It doesn't have a shape. You don't know where it's located. And if I was a car salesman, I said, I got a car for you, but I don't remember the brand. I don't remember where I parked it. And I don't remember the model. You'd be suspect. So through the course of our life, we make this self a thing, and we think that it's solid. But what it, all it is, really, is awareness. Mm-hmm. That thing, that your eye was Jesus's eye, was Buddha's eye, was your mother's eye. The ancient Buddhists call that the host. It's always there. It's awareness. Animals have it. Plants have it. We call the body the guest, because the guests come and go. Now, they need each other. If the host doesn't have a guest, it has no way to move through the world. It doesn't have sense organs to see, smell, taste, touch, feel. If, if the guest doesn't have a host, it has no idea of spiritual dimensions or the larger picture to which everything's attached. So what I said to these people was, you say our friend Francis has died. But really, has she? Because what Francis was made of Alongside her body was sunlight and water and oxygen and birds. They're still here. Yeah. All her six great grandchildren are here. Her four grandchildren are here. All her children are here. So really, it's just like she left the room.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And it's it's not exaggerating to say she'll be back as the rain. She'll be back as the sunrise. She'll be back when you hear the mockingbirds. We're not going to see her body walking around in the starlight, and that'll make you sad for a while. But if you don't run away from that sorrow, it'll disappear, and you'll be left with the memories. And that's the part that most people are not trained to think of or to do. So, you know, they feel bad. They want to make themselves feel better instead of just waiting it out with dignity and strength and looking at it and interrogating it and accepting if you weren't alive, you wouldn't feel it. Right. So no matter how bad it is, you're alive.
1: Yeah, I think in, it's it's in what what you're saying it, that really resonates for me. And I I look at like um, that overlay of ego that we have the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and what we do and what defines us in society and what makes us worthy and important. And when really big things happen in people's lives and the ego is removed, it's amazing how much easier life is when you don't have these stories to tell yourself, when you're, when you're humbled. When I, when I was going through chemo, I, I almost died twice. And in that time, with the time the first time when i when i knew that i was going into anaphylactic shock and i was i was dying i was remarkably calm and i thought wow my body was struggling on the outside but inside i was thinking so this is it this is this is, yeah. this, is this is what's going to happen and i wasn't afraid i was very calm and it changed the way i looked at the world And when I was well enough to kind of come back into the world and interact with people, I found that it was much easier and simpler because I didn't have the complications of the preconceived notions of myself that I had before because I had just been through so much. But then there was also, as I started to get healthy and things would bug me, and I was like, oh, my ego's coming back. I must be getting better. You know, the
0: ego has a job to do, Sarah, or it would have never survived evolution. Right. So all those things which Buddha called the three great afflictions of humankind, greed, hatred or anger Mm -hmm. and delusion, all had a kind of usefulness. When we were hominids, proto hominids, it was good to be greedy. It was necessary to be angry and protect your food sources and keep people away. So we still have those evolutionary traits and they're not useful any longer. But the ego itself, its its job is to teach us to wash our face, brush our teeth, cross on the green, act appropriately, dress appropriately, behave. It's not an enemy. Right. It's the fact that we have larded it with all these narratives. We've defined it into a cage so that it's become a warden instead of just a guide. And that's what's causing people
1: so much trouble. Yeah, there's there's a lot of... There's a lot of pain in the world. And that's actually, when I look at like uh, the legalization of cannabis or the advent of really the mainstreaming of the psychedelics movement, as we're seeing now, I understand that there, they can be tools to a certain extent, but I also understand that there are symptoms of this time that we are in our lives where there is a lot of pain and greed, not that there hasn't been throughout human human existence as we've seen like in history with wars and horrible things that people do to one another but it just when i look at like when we looked at cannabis before we went into legalization i used to talk about it as being a new way to look at the world like when we would i i did a compassion i used to run a compassion program to get free cannabis to people who were critically and chronically ill because insurance Mm -hmm. doesn't cover it and it helped them not use opiates, benzodiazepines, things like that right. that could be far right. more harmful. But now, when we're looking at the things that are going, I don't even go to conferences anymore because the the conversations just aren't as heartfelt and interesting. There are some people that are there that are very present, but by and large, it's people that are that are just looking at it as a commodity. And in some ways, especially when we're looking at companies that are just grabbing other companies, putting people out of business, you know, families who you know are losing their generational wealth because of this, it reminds me of the coked up day traders back in the day. And it's just like it's the I just I really was disappointed in the fact that I thought we would be seeing more. We are seeing some things with social equity. Um, We are seeing people who are impacted by the war on drugs being able to you know, be players in this field, but not as much as one would like. And also giving people the tools to create generational wealth um, would be a really important thing. I feel like we have, we have our sickness in our society where we don't, they're either the people who will do everything to get past everyone to get what they want. And there are people that are seriously struggling that can't seem to get a leg up on life. And it's, it, it affects generations beyond them. And that's something that really concerns me.
0: Well, so two things you make me think of. You mentioned earlier about the diggers. Yeah. We were talking. So the diggers was this group of us in the Haight-Ashbury. And we saw the counterculture as the possibility of coming up with a new paradigm, imagining a future we wanted to live in and making it real by acting it out. And we felt that the current system revolved around private property and profit. And so what the diggers did was we did everything anonymously, and we did everything without money, figuring that if you weren't getting rich or famous, you probably meant it. And what we were interested in was authenticity. Mm -hmm. So we started with all the runaways and all the kids that were coming to the Haight-Ashbury And they were broke and they were hungry and the city was sending tour buses through the hate, taking our pictures like we were monkeys and the hate merchants, the hip merchants were just like their fathers. They had 18 inches of counter and a cash register only instead of selling shoes and glasses and pharmaceuticals, they were selling saris and hash pipes and psychedelic posters and stuff like that. And so the diggers just started feeding people. We started going to the farmer's market, getting leftover food, and we were feeding 600 people a day. And all you had to do to get it was step through a six foot by six foot yellow frame we made, which was called the free frame of reference. Bring a spoon, bring a bowl, step through the free frame of reference. And then we'd give you a little one on a shoestring, and we'd invite you to look at the world as if things were free. Then we had a free store and we had tools, clothes, uh, books, furniture, everything, bicycles, everything worked, everything you needed. And the hidden the hidden subtext of it was, why do you want to become an employee to make the money to become a consumer? We'll give you the shit. Yeah. Now, what do you want to do? Yeah. And we wanted people, we we figured, you know, the whole model of the left was communism or socialism. And we just never believed that the middle class was going to throw itself on the barricades for the lumpen proletariat. But we believed that if people built lives that they wanted, they might defend them. And so that's what we did. We did that for three or four years. We printed the first Black Panther Party newspaper. We gave them food. Then we began building strings of communes around the country because we thought America was going to crumble. And we brought our own problems with it. But one of the problems, so we had personal problems. Then we had children who grew up who needed stability and order. And so people would move out of the chaos of a lot of the communes to get their kids schooling and To get away from wino eddie who was playing the tom-toms at four in the morning (laughs) when the mothers were waking up at five to nurse right so there were those two things going on but finally what you're really putting your finger on is the way that unregulated capitalism sets a noose and draws everything into it Yeah. So I've lived a lot in Europe. I've lived in England. I've lived in Italy. I've lived in France. I've lived in Spain. When I worked in the movies, it's like I would go places four or five months at a time. And they're capitalists, but they are regulated. They don't let the foxes guard the chicken house. They have laws. So everybody has health insurance. Yes, you pay higher taxes, but the people are not afraid of one another because everybody you pass on the street has voted to take care of you if you got ill and that changes a culture. But in America, when in 2008 our economy crashed and 6 million people a month were being evicted, not a single banker went to jail, not a single banker was fined, you know? So our culture revolves around making money which is a metaphor for having power. And so we have a subset of people that are living absolutely for free. And in this time of global warming, they can build rocket ships, which are an amusement park ride for billionaires. And they can dump 30 and 40 tons of carbon into the atmosphere to bounce up and down in a spaceship while most people, most people on Earth are having trouble eating. having trouble keeping a roof over their head, getting clean water. So these things are not preordained by human nature. These things are social and political decisions. Just like right now, you see all these people running for office, vowing publicly to take over the election system.
1: Oh, it's disgusting.
0: So until we recognize that we as human beings individually are responsible until we can learn how to contain our own worst impulses and least developed parts, we are the problem we're trying to solve. And so all these wild-eyed, you know, people with the golden plan that's gonna save tomorrow are forgetting about the dark side. And because they're not taking account of it, they're gonna become it, yeah. I guarantee you. Yeah. And that's what's happened to the pot industry. <sighs>
1: Yeah, it has. And actually, I mean, you talked a lot about the diggers just now, but one of our listeners, Alexander, was asking how you think that the diggers free ethics could work in cannabis.
0: Well. So there's nothing stopping you from growing a few plants and giving them away.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: You don't you don't have to you don't have to have 100 acres of plants and permits and irrigation. For instance, where I live in Sebastopol, it's dry farming country. We have fruit trees, apple orchards. I have 40 fruit trees. Well, all of a sudden, the economy is changing for marijuana and grapes. Super water intensive, super chemical intensive, changing the aquifers, changing the the chemicals that are going into the air completely wiping out bee populations because the fungicides of the wineries kill the enzymes in a bee's saliva that turns their pollen into bee bread, which feeds their babies. So, you know, but in a capitalist system, if you can afford it, if you have plenty of capital, you can buy land, you can set it up $25,000 an acre to to grow uh, grapes. I don't know what it costs to do to do weed. And you're not answerable to the environment. You're not answerable to the community to say, Hey, you know something, maybe we don't want a hundred acres of weed in our community. Maybe we don't want to give up that much water. So the only way to to get around that is to go small. If you think weed should be free, grow a little with your extra money and give it away. Set that as an example. Um, But the diggers were never an actual model for an economy. We were trying to engage people's imaginations and say, think about the way you wanna live, really, and now start doing it and make it happen. And it's just amazing what we did. And even today, there's still 108 of us on an email exchange, kicking in money every month. We're taking care of 15 of our people that got old and indigent And we're able to give them 200 bucks a month extra over their social security to give them a little grace. So we didn't sell out when we had to leave the communes. We just adjusted to reality, raised our kids, did the best we could, but did did not betray our principles.
1: That's wonderful. I really, I think it's so important for, as a society, for us to take care of one another. And with one thing that really disturbs me and and this is something like i said it it goes back way farther than you and I have been living. But the fact that there are very there is a very small portion of our society that's very wealthy, and they've when we look at like hate, whether it's racism or what have you, a lot of that is by design because if people actually connected on their socioeconomic commonalities rather than all these other differences we would have a lot more peace in the world and we'd be able to identify more problems and take care of one another instead of being distracted by these constructs of hate that benefit very wealthy people.
0: So do you know, I want to just get this name right so I don't misquote it, but there, there's a, uh, there's a wonderful book called Sacred Pleasure.
1: Oh, I don't know that one. I'm going to write it down.
0: Okay, I'm going to see. I'm going to find it. The woman's name is Ryan, Mm R-I-A-N-E, Eisler, E-I-S-L-E-R. And what her book is about is the oldest religion on earth, 30,000 years. The religion that made the cave paintings at, you know... um, having a senior moment. You know, you've seen all the pictures of the caves with the paintings of buffalo yeah. and lions and tigers and the little altars in them. Well, that, that religion went for 30,000 years. It's where the, uh, the Venus of Willendorf came from, and it was a woman-worshipping religion. They worshipped the vulva, breasts, the creative, life-affirming uh, ability of women, And they were partnership cultures. And sometime around 2000 BC, after this 30,000 years, um, these horsemen and shepherds came in, which were male-dominated patriarchal societies. And they kind of took over. It it took centuries because they, at first, the, the male patriarchs got their power by sleeping with the goddesses. But little by little, they change to domination cultures. So in a domination culture, everything is based on fear. You're running away from the fear of pain or the fear of being hurt or the fear of being hungry or the fear of being abandoned. And in matriarchal societies, everything was based on pleasure and consensual getting together. And lots of poets and people have written about this. There's a book called The White Goddess by Robert Graves, who talks about this overthrow and he calls it the great cataclysmic event of human history. So what we're living in now is a world that's dominated by domination culture. That's the one that wants to control women's bodies, that wants to say, yes, you must deliver this baby, it doesn't matter, but your life, your age, you're nothing. And these things are antithetical to the way that human beings have lived for the multiple of majorities of their time on earth. I mean, Jesus is only, he's not 2,500 years old. Right. That religion, this was 30,000 all over the world. These caves and grottos with symbols that were the same traveling everywhere. These statues of women, these clay goddesses, recognizing fertility and recognizing fecundity. So part of it is we're, we're kind of on the tail end of this Greek, Achaean, horseback riding, warrior, shepherd, people who wanted to dominate nature and kill the wolves and protect their little sheep and keep everything available for themselves. And that's karma that's centuries old. And we're all caught in the web of it.
1: Yeah. it's when I When I first moved to San Francisco in 96, I went to this this gathering, my friends that I had at the time, which I've still, a lot of us still keep in contact, but we're a bunch of like vegan electronica hippies all <laughs> hanging out in San Francisco. And we had this big gathering for the time when we crossed into the age of Aquarius. And we were, uh-huh. ha- we were having that conversation about, it's not like hair. It's not like everything's beautiful and happy. The age of Aquarius is a time of great shift and change and a hardship to get to a better place.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if I believe in, in, in better. Yeah. I believe in, in awake and not awake. Yeah, Pe- People who are awake are aware of the pain and suffering of others. You know, nobody has any special feeling about artificial flowers because they're not dying. And the reason we love and cherish flowers is because they're almost dying in front of us. And the truth is you can look at any anything in the world that way. You can look at any person and you realize they're like a, a snowflake. They're an unrepeatable experience, whether you like them or not, is immaterial. They're an expression of the central energy of the universe. I'm made by the same thing that made Donald Trump. I may not like him, but he has equal standing to exist as I do. And if I have criticisms of him, they can't be based on my superiority or my being good, him being not. I was not raised by a dad who was in the Ku Klux Klan who taught me how to be a schemer and a swindler. So I don't know, most of, I, I keep saying that we are the problem we're trying to solve. And until we accept that we are the behavior that we're pointing to in others and rooting it out in ourselves and disciplining it and learning how to control it, we're just recreating the chaos we say we're not. How many times have you been in a room with people screaming about peace? yeah yeah it's an my uncomfortable
1: point. mirror to look into yeah.
0: my point that's right
1: yeah so
0: it takes courage and it takes some stability and meditation is what gives you the stability and the confidence of doing it over and over develops your courage because you realize wow i can i can handle anything that comes up i don't need to be pushed around by it
1: when you're going to meditation and talking about, you were referencing before kind of, and I'm paraphrasing, but the euphoria that you get from your practice. And my husband, Jeff, told me that you are quite the prolific songwriter. He loved your music when the two of you sat down and played music a few years ago. Wait, who's Jeff? Jeff Pearson is my husband. He, uh-huh. he oh, I played, see. Yeah, he played with okay. Further. And he, you and he, a, a few years ago we met up in a practice space, and you ended up trading some songs, and that was the thing that he remembered about you. Is you, because he's he has a lot of people coming up to him saying, "Hey, let me let let me play you my song." He's like, "That's great," but when he heard your music, he was really moved by it, and, and that's one thing that he's mentioned to me. He's like, oh, "Most people, great. yeah, most people don't know that Peter is actually a, a, a quite an accomplished musician and songwriter." Well, my
0: I call it my hobby. And when the communes broke up, we had this commune at Olima, we built three double bed bunkhouses, double bed bunk beds. We so six people and lots of musicians would come, but Mike Bloomfield came by. I mean, all sorts Norton Buffalo, all sorts of great people. And when the 60 and I was I wrote a lot of songs and my job was to make sure in a jam session that everybody fit in, you know, I used to be a drummer. I kept good time and I wanted to do things so that everybody could participate. So when the communes were over, uh, I made a record with some friends. A lot of them had gone on to become professional musicians, but I knew I would never be a first rate musician. I'm a talented amateur. I was happy to stay there. I still, play and study guitar and write songs and we made this record and we gave it away another digger act we gave it away to about 200 people who had come through olima and um it, it was good i mean i love writing songs i love playing music and sometimes i think one day i was playing with bonnie rate who's an old pal and she I and some bonnie people were over and we were playing and she said God, this is so much fun. I haven't done this in years. We should do this again. I said, well, Bonnie, everybody's listening to your records. You know, the thing is you have to sit down and play and not compare yourself to the best in the world. You just play as good as you can. And, you know, don't hog the stage and share and express your life through your songs. That's all you need to do.
1: It's true. It's true. And I know for myself, I'm I, I'm a singer. I, I sing jazz. So when uh-huh. you said Billie Holiday, she's always, she and Nina Simone are two of my idols, along no. with Linda Ronstadt, her Nelson Real well, I was Yorkshire. raised
0: by beboppers.
1: Oh, that's Literally. awesome.
0: My dad's best friend was Charlie Parker's roommate in Kansas City. No. Who bro- brought him to New York. And my neighbors were Al Cohen and Zoot Sims and Freddie Red. And I went. On the every birthday from the time I was ten to seventeen, when I left the East Coast, I would go to the half note, Thelonious Monk, and I have the same birth had the same birthday. He toasted me twice with Coca Cola.
1: Ah, oh, that's awesome.
0: Um, yeah, <laughs> that's why I was never so much into the '60s music scene. I-, I grew up with jazz heads, really, from ten years old. Jazz and blues, and my uh, my kind of foster father was a gospel singer like uh swan silvertones
1: wow i
0: mean yeah so that's that's where my musical compass took me
1: yeah i me too i was i was raised on all sorts of jazz my parents though liked more contemporary stuff like i was raised on like george benson Grover washington jr yeah. and then i started delving into like sarah vaughn and all that stuff yeah. and really geeking out on it and it's I, I felt really, really fortunate to be able to see Nina Simone before she passed. It was yeah, just something to see. Yeah. She was a, see. a beast,
0: wasn't she? I mean, yeah. awesome.
1: Yeah. Awesome.
0: Well, I mean, so I studied drums with, uh, I studied drums with a guy named Cozy Cole and uh, Dinah Washington's son was my classmate. And uh, I was in a band from about 11 years old to about 15 Uh, There's a young jazz man named Roger Glenn around here, who's a a Latin jazz guy, just a brilliant guy. And his older brother, he was 11 and his older brother was the horn player in our band, the fabulous Imperials. And we were making, when I was 11 years old, we were making $25 a night in the 1950s playing CYO dances. That's some good money. Yeah. For a, for an eleven-year-old to have yeah. fifty dollars in his pocket, when coke was a
1: nickel, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Well, when you when you're getting into your creative space, what is it? Does meditation help you, or what is it that really inspires you to get into that flow state?
0: Well, all I have to do really is just put my attention on my breathing, and it's just like putting the clutch in in a stick shift car. I disengage my mind from thinking about it. And so it's just spinning free, you know, in a stick shift car, you can step on the clutch and you can give the engine as much gas as you want. It's not going anywhere. So when there's something I have to think about, well, I'll put my attention on what I'm thinking about, but most of the time, There's just odd little scenes and movies and random quotes and observations that are just bubbling up. And I just, I just keep it at sort of a low boil. I I don't have to, I don't have to do anything particular. All I have to do is put my attention on it. And at this stage in my life, my mind doesn't have a lot of boundaries.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. When We're getting to the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you, when you look at, like, what are things that you're excited about when you look to the future of our our society and mindfulness and people creating balance in their lives or, or just something that just comes to mind for you?
0: Well, one thing is I'm in love I'm excited about that.
1: Congratulations. It's a yeah. beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, it is. And not what I expected to find at 80, you know. Um, I look at my granddaughter and her friends and how smart they are and how uh, committed and how um, excited they are to be alive and testings, And, you know, my granddaughter explained to me the whole thing about pronouns, which I didn't understand at all. And she just laid it out in the most commonsensical way. You know, she said, well, people aren't always sure what they are. So sometimes a girl doesn't feel like a girl. So, you know, she used a different pronoun. And I went, oh, okay, I get it. It's like, so of course I'm interested in the kids, but I feel that every generation throws the, the, the weight of their bullshit on their children. Mm -hmm. And that if they really cared about their children, they would not be passing on a world that's existentially imperiled by global warming and nuclear weapons. So are the kids going to do any better than we did? I doubt it. I think there's going to be some huge disaster that's going to have to change the mind of mankind. But um, I can't say I'm excited about that. I'm apprehensive about that. But no matter what, the sun's going to rise tomorrow. The birds are, my house is so full of birds. I go through 50 pounds of bird seed a month. And, um, you know, my garden is growing. I eat out of my garden. Uh, I play music every day. Uh, I write. I've just sold two books on Buddhism, which are going to come out sometime this year. And I'm excited really about my next breath. Because there's no guarantees. Every one of us is going to have one last exhale. And the nice thing about meditating is you're practicing. You're just putting your attention on your exhale. You feel it coming out through your nostrils. And if you inhale, the universe is breathing you. You're still alive. If you don't, you're not.
1: Thank you so much. for people. You're more than welcome. Who, uh, for, and for people who want to follow you and, and keep in touch to see when your books are coming out or other projects that you're working on, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Well, probably Peter, probably the authentic Peter Coyote on Facebook, um, or there's Peter Coyote author, I think on Facebook, and I'm not as good at self-publishing as I should be, but um, I always announce it and there'll always be stuff. Uh, I just, I just would be happy if people just dedicated 20 minutes a day to sitting in front of a wall straight up. And just paying attention to their actual life, how busy their mind is, not trying to slow it down, not trying to make themselves anything they're not, it'll slow down on its own. And basically learned the full breadth of who they are, all the umbilical cords they're attached to. They've never been separate from this entire universe for 10 seconds in their entire lives. So once you realize that you're the sunrise, you're the moonrise, you're the rain, you're the flowers blossoming, you're the food rotting in the compost heap, nothing bothers you too much.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. I got, I got to tell you I had to I had to keep it together a couple of times when we were talking because some of well I, I love everything you have to say, but there were points that you made during our conversation that just, they got me misty, that got me really thinking and really, really touched my heart. So I, I just want to thank you for spending time with me on well, this Thursday easy. morning.
0: <laughs> you ask good questions and that's my gig, you know, I'm a priest. I'm supposed to think of these things. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Sarah.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And everyone remember, Planted is twice a month. And if you like listening, please give us reviews, share it with a friend, let us know what your favorite episodes are, and if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook, and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com, or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts, like one of my favorites, the Winemakers podcast, so check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in, we are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care.